Yesterday, Mikhail Gorbachev, the final secretary general of the Soviet Union, the man who with Ronald Reagan brought about the peaceful end of the Cold War, died at the age of 91. Some of our younger listeners might not remember Gorbachev, uh, might not even know who he was. Gorbachev was, at the time of his death, quite elderly, a prominent figure in politics since the 1970s, pretty much never had a job outside of government, uh, presided over the demise of a once powerful nation and empire. His policies hastened his empire's demise, and he was a fellow traveler with actual communists. Gorbachev was, in many ways, a lot like Joe Biden. But that is not really fair to Gorbachev, and I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, either Gorbachev or Biden. Gorbachev was, in many ways, a much better man than Joe Biden. Damning praise, I know, but he was in many ways a great man in his own right. Reagan needed him to end the Cold War, which occurred without a shot fired, and he was committed to a new course of reform for his empire, a new course summed up in two policies, glasnost and perestroika, transparency in government and a fundamental restructuring of the political and economic order. That is probably the biggest difference of all between Biden and Gorbachev. The old top commie was far more willing to root out government corruption and give his people an increased say in politics and the economy than the big guy at 1600 Pennsylvania right now ever would. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Welcome back to the show. My favorite comment yesterday is from A. Hines, who says, when I was younger, much younger, I was a Democrat and protested and rebelled against the government. And now I'm old and a Republican. Once again, I am rebelling against the government. Isn't that amazing? Everything old is new again. We have got to protect ourselves against all sorts of problems, including the government. That's why you got to check out Ring. Right now, head on over to ring.com slash Knowles. Summer is busy. It's busy for everyone. People go on vacation. If you're me, you spend three days in the hospital because your wife is giving birth to your second beloved son. Either way, you're going to be away from home. So you want to be able to keep an eye on your home, whether you're there in the home, whether you're at the office, whether you're on a beach on the other side of the world. Ring can do that. You all know about the Ring video doorbell where you can see and speak to whoever is at your door wherever you are in the world. Did you know that Ring has an award-winning alarm with available professional monitoring when you subscribe? Well, if you didn't know that, you certainly should because then you can protect your home. You can keep an eye on your, on your windows, on your doors, on everything in between. But that's not all. Did you know that Ring has Ring Alarm Pro? That's what CNET calls a giant leap for home security, where you protect not just your physical home, but your digital home too. Well, let's do it, baby. Protect your digital home with a very fast Eero Wi-Fi 6 router. Become a pro. Be a pro, just like me. This summer, go pro. Get Ring Alarm Pro. Learn more at ring.com slash Knowles. That is ring.com slash Knowles. Gorbachev died. Uh, Gorbachev, I think, is, is, is the man that we need right now. I would, I would strongly support a Gorbachev in 2024. The policies we need right now, give me the Republican who will run on Glasnost and Perestroika because it is really disturbing, but 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the United States in many ways resembles our old vanquished foe, the Soviet Union. You've got this weak economy. You've got 
uh, political corruption everywhere. You've got the police, the federal police force being used essentially as a, as a, the private security and bullying team of the ruling party. There's essentially one ruling party in the country. You've got imperial possessions falling apart around the world. We're, we're not in a great situation right now. We're not in a great situation at all. The difference is that Gorbachev was kind of lovable and Joe Biden is not really lovable. If Biden ever was lovable, which I don't, I never found him particularly charming, but a lot of people did. That's gone. I mean, a good old backslap and Joe, I love you, kid. Come on now, Jack. Hey, come on. That guy's gone. Now he's just an angry, screaming old man who calls everyone a racist and says half the country is fascist. Unlike Gorbachev, who will probably best be remembered in terms of his actual appearances, video footage of him will probably best be remembered after the fall of the Soviet Union for starring in a Pizza Hut commercial. It's an amazing commercial. Walking around Moscow and then there he goes, sits down in a Pizza Hut. I'll translate. It's Gorbachev. It is Gorbachev. Because of him, we have economic confusion. Because of him, we have opportunity. Because of him, we have political instability. Because of him, we have freedom. Complete chaos, hope, instability. Because of him, we have many things. Like Pizza Hut. <laughs> and then they all agree, even the big critic. Hail to Gorbachev. Hail to Gorbachev. People together like a nice hot pizza from Pizza Hut. This Pizza Hut commercial, more than any other symbol, sums up the fall of the Soviet Union. More, more than the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fact that you have the former Soviet leader starring in a commercial for this Western capitalist chain pizza franchise sums it all up. And what, what it did sum up for the Russian people, even in all of the corruption and all of the craziness that surrounded the fall of the Berlin Wall, was economic opportunity. Okay, we're going to liberalize the markets. We're going to get the economy going again after decades of, of decline. And so Gorbachev has this complicated legacy, but it does remind us of something that's really important. You need economic growth. You need prosperity. Prosperity will paper over a lot of bad things. And because we don't have that prosperity now, because the economy is in the United States is in such a bad shape, because we've got 40-year high inflation, because of all the problems in our economy, all of those long-simmering cultural tensions are, are bursting out into the open right now. And you've got the leader of our country, unlike the lovable, peaceable Gorbachev, you got the leader of our country, Joe Biden, coming out, calling half the country fascist. And then j just yesterday coming out, and uh, saying that we need to give up our guns, give up our Second Amendment rights. There's no way you'll ever fight the government. You're going to need an F-15 to fight the government because we are going to, if we wanted to, we could put that boot on your neck so hard, you wouldn't know which end was up. The rights granted by the Second Amendment are not unlimited. They're not unlimited. Right now, you can't go out and buy an automatic weapon. You can't go out and buy a cannon. And for those brave right-wing Americans who say it's all about 
keeping America, keeping America's independent and safe. If you want to fight against the country, you need an F-15. You need something a little more than a gun. No, I'm not joking. Think about this. Think about the rationale we use that's used to provide this. And who are they shooting at? Shooting at these guys behind me. So first of all, on his claims of fact, they're just not true. You, can't, you couldn't get a cannon. Yes, you could. You can still, by the way. You can still buy a cannon. You can, if you want to fight the government, if you wanted to fight the American government, you would need an F-15. You couldn't just have a gun. Um, that's interesting. Uh, what, what does Afghanistan have to say about that? Because last time I checked, the uh, goat herders in Afghanistan were able to fend off the Americans in a 20-year war with little more than black powder rifles. Afghanistan is the size of Texas. So no, I think you could. In this kind of doomsday scenario where the government turns tyrannical and starts attacking the American people, first of all, you don't think that some members of the U.S. military are going to defect at that point? I don't think, most military service members I know are pretty patriotic people. I don't think they'd fire on their own citizens. Furthermore, you don't think that if a bunch of Afghani goat herders uh, could, could defeat the United States in a 20-year war, that, that uh, the American people ourselves could maybe push back a little against corruption and abuse? I think probably we could. Not, I'm, I'm not, not convinced of that otherwise. But furthermore, Joe Biden saying this sort of thing am, amounts to a kind of a threat. Right? He's, this is on the heels of Biden calling half the country fascist, Biden calling half the country racist and, and saying that Donald Trump's a, a white nationalist and a racist and all these things. This is on the heels of the Biden's DOJ classifying parents who don't want their kids to, to have their genitals lopped off in school as terrorists. This is on the heels of Biden sicking the FBI on his predecessor and chief political rival. This is on the heels of terrible economic growth. This is on the heels of weakness abroad. It's like it's 1989 all over again, and we're, and, but somehow the roles are reversed and we're living in the Soviet Union. And unfortunately, we don't, we don't have a good leader like Gorbachev running the show. It's like we've got, I don't know, Joe Biden makes Brezhnev look like a youthful and vigorous person, okay? It's like we've got all those old, decrepit, you know, weekend at Bernie's kind of Soviet leaders. That's who Biden's like. I don't want to besmirch Gorbachev's memory by comparing him to him. E- even the, the libs are re- realizing this is just going too far. There's a CNN panel that just came out and said, hey, Biden, cool it with the fascist stuff. The term semi-fascist is not helpful. It's not befitting the office of president. And while you can absolutely call out the dangers to our democracy, but it makes obviously perfect sense for someone like Senator Hassan because look, in New Hampshire, 40, more than 40% of registered voters are independents, right? I mean, another, another, another 30 and change are Republicans. Democrats are the third category among registered, re- registered voters. So she needs to be able to reach out. And that language doesn't help her do and, that. And Ashley, you're being kind in terms of trying to parse and, and put what he said into a certain context. The takeaway from Republicans is that the president of the United States who campaigned on, won on, and was sworn in on a message of unity, lowering the temperature and bringing this country together, just called half of the country fascist. And, 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 and you can parse it how you want, but that's the takeaway. And then Maggie Hassan was right. He painted the Republican Party as a bunch of fascists. This isn't a one-time thing. I mean, Biden has all the precision, you know, of a surgeon with a meat axe here. I mean, when, <laughs> when, when Republicans wouldn't go along with his bill to federalize all 
elections. He said, well, you're either Jefferson Davis or Bull Connor. I mean, his natural instinct is to go to an extreme insult sort of. So you're either racist That's or not, you're a fascist. It's almost the whole panel there. It's not even just like the one lone sort of fake conservative. It's almost the whole panel on CNN saying Biden is too far. He's divisive. He's angry. He's he's speaking in such a way that doesn't befit the office of the president. This is CNN. Why? Why is CNN saying this? Is it because they all of a sudden they got a conscience? I doubt it. Is it because all of a sudden they're conservative? I doubt that too. I think they're they're saying we need to correct course here because they realize that the people are turning on them. They're looking at the generic congressional ballot. They're looking at the reaction of the actual American people. And they're saying, yikes, we are losing them, folks. We need a little glass in Austin perestroika here, I think, because the, the current leadership of this country, the democratic leadership, is really, really bad and increasingly unpopular. You remember how for two and a half years, the big tech companies censored you anytime you questioned any of the lib authorities on COVID? They would censor you. They would deplatform you in some cases, kick you out of the public square. You, the ordinary American, also elected politicians, also even scientists in some cases. And then when the science, when the political realities all ended up justifying and validating all the things that we skeptics had said from the beginning. Then big tech denied it. They said, no, nothing to see here. Move along, move along. We can't let them move along. What they did during COVID to censor us is one of the biggest political shifts I've ever seen in my life. We've got the receipts. Don't let them memory hold this thing. We got a video out on my YouTube channel. Make sure you go check it out. It is big tech's endless present. This is a COVID blacklist timeline, point by point by point. I know they're going to try to memory hole and delete all of the old clips and, and all of that evidence. Don't let them do it. Educate yourself, arm yourself with that knowledge. Don't let them do it again. The libs are going way, way too far. The California State Assembly has just passed a bill that seeks to establish California as a sanctuary for children seeking transgender medical treatment as well as their pervert parents who want to put the kids through these kinds of genital mutilations and experimental hormone uh, therapies. The legislation is called SB 107. Uh, the bill's author is Senator Scott Weiner. Because all nature is but art unknown to thee. Because that's just a that's just providence kind of winking. I think just the kind of humorous order, even to this very fallen world, uh, winking through Scott Wiener. If you've heard that name before, we've mentioned him on the show. Scott Wiener is that sexual degenerate who made it his mission, his crusade in the California legislature to soften the punishments for pederasts, for grown men who have sex with little boys. He said it was very unfair. There were, there were unfair and unequal treatments for pederasts. And so Scott Wiener decided to take up their cause. And now in the least surprising turn of events in the news that you've ever seen, the man, the degenerate who wanted to soften the punishments for pederasty now wants a bunch of sexually confused kids to come to his state. Isn't that shocking? Never, never saw that one coming. Did you? Sick stuff only, you know, furthering the nickname for Los Angeles and San Francisco is Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah by the sea. Uh, really awful, awful stuff. Everyone involved in this, this, this Senator Scott Weiner, the, the parents, 
the, the doctors, these shaman witch doctor quacks who are lopping off the genitals of kids or, or pumping them full of hormones and, and puberty blockers to, to get them ready to start lopping off their genitals. All these people should be in prison. All of these people should be ostracized from society. There's no question about that. And I don't, I don't want to hear any states' rights argument for it either. Okay, there's the kind of squish position, which is, well, listen, if California wants to lop off the genitals of kids, that's their business. That's their right. That's, no, they don't have a right to do that. <laughs> they don't. Scott Wiener doesn't have a right to do this. These quack doctors don't have a right to do this. The parents don't have a right to do this either. And we are not only justified, we actually have an obligation to say that. No. So you don't get to, you don't get to put little kids through all sorts of mutilations to make the little boy look more like a little girl. No one has the right to do that. There's no right from democracy. There's no right from the sexual revolution or anything else. When they're not chopping up the little kids, they are, they are killing the little kids and a lot of other people too. This, uh, not just in California, but up in America's top hat, Canada. In Canada now, they are very heavily pushing assisted suicide. They, they use a, another euphemism. It's not just euthanasia, which was the, the euphemism for many years for assisted suicide. It means a good death, even though it's not a good death at all, because suicide is the, basically the worst kind of death you can imagine. But now they call it MAID, M-A-I-D, Medical Assistance in Dying. And Canada, in, over the last six or so years, has been really aggressive in pushing assisted suicide to the point that we're not just talking about a few marginal cases. Because I know even there are a number of conservatives sometimes who will say, well, look, if an old person has all sorts of terrible diseases and is going through an intense amount of pain, maybe in that rare case, it should be okay for that person to be able to kill himself. I don't think that's true, but I can see why some people might start to believe that. But the thing about assisted suicide is, it, it cannot remain just a kind of fringe, one in a million kind of case. The moment that you legalize assisted suicide, assisted suicide is going to explode and it's going to become a huge percentage of, the, of deaths every single year. This is, this is what you're seeing in Canada. Only recently did Canada really start to legalize assisted suicide and start to peddle this stuff. Now, as of last year, over 3% of deaths in Canada are, are through suicide. Or, I'm sorry, are through assisted suicide. There are other suicides as well. Over 3%. That's a huge number. And it's only going to grow. And now the Canadians are going to push it on little kids. I'm not joking. There's a piece here. This is in the Ottawa Citizen. On expanding medical assistance in dying to mature minors. So what they're saying is, no, we're not just going to kill any little kids. We're going to kill minors who are, can make their own decisions. Now, the thing about minors is they can't make their own decisions. That's why we have age of consent laws. That's why it is illegal for you right now listening to this show to sleep with a 16-year-old. You can't, if, if you're over whatever, 19 or 20 or what, well, I don't know, whatever, whatever the laws are in your state. If you're over, if you're, if you're not a kid anymore, it is illegal for you to sleep with someone who is a minor. Why is that? Because we have age of consent laws, because we say that young people just are not fully in command of their faculties to make these kinds of important decisions. Now, the libs are trying to turn that on their head. They're saying, yes, it's true. A 16-year-old can't make a decision about whether or not to have a one-night stand, but a six-year-old can make the decision about whether to permanently destroy his or her genitals and sterilize themselves and give themselves all kinds of 
problems and osteoporosis and all kinds of persistent conditions for the rest of their lives because they do have autonomy. They do have agency. Obviously, they don't. Now, Canada is going to take it even further. They're going to say, hold my beer. Hold, hold, hold my, my Labatt's. Hold my Golden Molson. Sorry. I'm just, I'm just doing my Jordan Peterson impression. Not only, not only are we going to let the children have a one-night stand. Is it becoming Irish? I don't know. Not only are we going to let the kids chop off their genitals, but we're going to let the kids kill themselves as well. Sorry. That's what they're saying now. That's insane. To clarify, Jordan Peterson is not saying that, but all the lunatics up in Canada are saying that. They are saying that. And this is the logical conclusion, of course. It was always the logical conclusion of all of this. Which kids do you think are going are to be killed through assisted suicide? Do you think it's going to be just the happy, normal, well No, it's going to be the disabled kids. What this is going to amount to is uh, uh, just another aspect of the system of eugenics that the libs have been pushing through abortion primarily. But now if they don't get them at the very beginning of their lives, they're going to get them shortly thereafter. And they're going to say, oh, you're, a li- you're disabled, you're sad, you're depressed. Okay, 12-year-old, well, you can make the mature and informed decision to kill yourself, and we're going to support you in that. Ghastly, ghastly stuff. There was a a news story that came out yesterday that the largest child sacrifice in human history has just been excavated in Peru. It was uh, not the Incas, but it was the civilization before the, I forget what they're called, the Chimeas or something. It was the civilization that the Incas conquered. And they, they found 450 child sacrifices around the age of 10 or 12 in this altar pit. I thought, wow, that's pretty bad. But those guys don't have anything on modern Westerners. Not even close. We sacrifice 850,000 babies a year through abortion. It's not even close. Even the Aztecs on their worst day didn't, didn't get that far. And now look at what we're doing in Canada. Even if you want to say, implausibly, I think, that babies aren't really babies, that if a baby's in the womb, the baby's not really a human being or not really alive, that's a silly argument. But okay, now we're talking about kids who are like eight. We're talking about kids who are 12. And Canada is saying, and they're in the really, really serious, sophisticated way, that Justin Trudeau, you know, smiley, really nice, happy way. Yes, we're going to let the disabled kids die. We're going to kill them. We're going to have doctors kill the disabled kids if they get a little sad sometimes. And that'll be better for everybody, don't you think? No, of course not. Of course not. We all know that this is evil. Okay. The left is for it because the left supports evil things. That's just what the left is. That even the very term left in politics comes out of the French Revolution. And it was the people who sat on the left of the National Assembly who were attacking the church. It's just an attack on God. When it really gets down to it, that's what leftism is. So the, we all know it's evil. The, the left is for it because the left supports evil things. And the right is just kind of impotent because the, the right can't really articulate the definition between good and evil. Some conservatives can, but the ones who have fallen into the squishiness of the you do you and well, who's to say what's good or bad, man, or don't force me to do anything, or I'm not going to impose my views on anybody, man, whatever. You know, they adopt all of these kind of silly libertarian-ish platitudes they can't articulate what to do about this. The only language that the right has been able to use in recent decades is the language of autonomy, the language of choice. So they're going to say, well, if they oppose this at all, they're going to say, well, it's wrong because the kids can't choose. The kids can't freely consent. It's fine for adults to kill themselves, but it's, it's wrong for kids because the kids can't freely consent. That's not primarily what's wrong with it. 
The thing that's primarily wrong with it is that it is always wrong to kill yourself. It's a grave, grave sin because you do not own your body. You didn't bring yourself into this world. You have no right to bring yourself out of this world. Your life is a gift to you from God. You are a steward of yourself and your body, and you have responsibilities. You don't just get to do whatever the hell you want to do all the time. You have duties and responsibilities to the moral order, which is real and which we in our country are, are denying every bit as much. You, you want to talk, we, we talk about evil empires, you know, the Soviet Union. And what genuinely was an evil empire. And we talk about evil empires like the Aztecs and all those people practicing human sacrifice down there in Latin America. Well, I think the moderns ought to take a little look in the mirror, okay? Before you accuse me, take a look at yourself. Because the stuff that we're delving into right now, really, really wicked stuff, would make the Aztecs blush. Speaking of bad things that everyone seems to agree upon, there is a, a new trailer that's out on Netflix. And this, this one shook me. I got really shook. The, the trailer is for a show called Athena. And the show depicts a civil war in which the Arabs and the Africans in France over, overthrow the French and this results in a kind of a civil war. Now, the, the trailer is in French, so I will harness all of my, you know, Pepe Le Pew linguistic uh, skills to translate it for you. Here's the trailer. So you see this guy who looks, I don't know, Arab or Algerian or something like that. He's walking through the streets. You know, there's violence all around him. He's... He's walking, he's on a mission, and then there are these words appearing on screen, but it's not fully there yet. Lorsque le destin frappe nul mortel ne peut se libérer du malheur. I greatly apologize for my poor French pronunciation there. Uh, but it's by Sophocles, and so the, the line means when, when destiny strikes, when destiny strikes, uh, no one can escape the misfortune. No mortal person can escape the misfortune. And so what is this predicting? This is saying this is destiny. This is fate. You are going to have a race war in France, and it's going to cause the collapse of the government and the society, and you're going to have a civil war, a war, a war between the French on one side and the Africans and the Arabs on the other side. And what's so interesting about this to me is that it's, one, it's being put out by Netflix. So this is a lib vision of society. And the libs have talked about these kinds of racial politics and oppression narratives and overcoming and, and resistance and toppling the powers that be for a very long time. And you've also heard this kind of dread on the right. So that's from the left. On the right, you've heard a kind of dread, which is, gosh, if we keep this stuff up, guys, we're going to have racial conflict and you're going to have this. And if we, if we just flood the country with migrants, but we don't assimilate any of them, then you're going to have a lot of ethnic and racial conflict. And that could really lead to a lot of social instability. And what's so amazing to me about the trailer is everyone agrees on it. Everyone seems to agree that this kind of conflict is not only possible, but maybe likely. The line from Sophocles here is that it's a destiny. It's inevitable that this is going to happen. The only difference here is that the conservatives are saying, this would be a bad thing. We dread this. We don't want to see this kind of conflict. And the libs seem to think it would be a very good thing, something heroic, something worth celebrating. This gets back to something I've cited 
a number of times on this show recently. It's what Mike Anton calls the celebration parallax. When the libs say something and then the conservatives repeat verbatim what the libs just said, the conservatives will be called crazy conspiracy theorists. The libs are allowed to say it and celebrate it. But the moment the conservatives repeat it in a way to perhaps criticize it or warn about it, they're called crazy. They're not, they're just simply not allowed to say the very same thing that the libs are. If a conservative made this show, and there have been some kind of far right, uh, you know, dystopian visions of these kinds of conflicts. It's always written off as it's, this is fascist, the neo-Nazi far right wing, horrible, crazy, dystopian. But then the libs come out with the very same images and they say, wow, beautiful. Yes. Slay queen. This is great. This is very scary. It's very scary when pretty much everyone in your society is predicting social collapse and racial conflict as inevitable even if one side likes it and one side doesn't like it. That's very, very scary when, when something seems so imminent that everyone sees it coming. Speaking of race wars, Jud- Judicial Watch sue, has just sued a school district over the Minneapolis Public School Teacher Union contract that explicitly discriminates against white people. I covered this probably a month ago on the show. This contract where in Minneapolis, they, the teachers union signed on to say that if there are ever going to be cuts to the teachers, the white people get cut first. It just establishes a racial hierarchy and it says we're going to discriminate against whites even more than the schools already are doing. So Judicial Watch, which is a conservative group, announced that they're suing on behalf of the Minneapolis taxpayer over this union agreement. And uh, what does this all mean for us? Normal people of all races, of all backgrounds, and all geographies understand that it is wrong to take a class of people on the basis of their race or ethnicity and say, we're going to make you permanent second-class citizens and we're going to take away your jobs and we're going to discriminate against you. Everyone knows that. You don't need to be a white person to, to be shocked and offended by this story. Every normal, decent person of every single race understands that. The libs are just making a gamble here. They're saying, if we run on anti-white, anti-male, anti-Christian, anti-tradition politics, anti-American in many cases, if we run on that, we're going to be able to cobble together a coalition of enough angry radicals to win elections. Might not even be a majority, but it could be a plurality and we're going to win these, these elections. And what are the conservatives doing? Nothing. They're not addressing this. They have to address this. Judicial Watch has the right instinct here. The Republican Party needs to articulate why this is wrong. They need to say there is anti-white discrimination in the Minneapolis public school system, and it's wrong. And it's wrong in theory, and it's wrong in practice in, in this particular case. Republicans and conservatives don't want to do that because we feel that it's, we've bought the liberal line. We feel that it's racist somehow to say that you shouldn't discriminate against white people. I don't know how that's possible, but the libs just convinced us of that because the libs say you can't, you can't be racist against white people. So even when the conservatives and the Republicans want to talk about the, the, how awful race discrimination in affirmative action is in schools and, and hiring, they never talk about the white people because they just feel it's kind of icky. Let's not talk about, they'll, they'll only talk about Asians. 
So it happens to be the case, and this is a kind of unfortunate circumstance for the Asian people, but a a happy circumstance for those who want to fight against race discrimination called affirmative action, which is that you could say, well, it's wrong to the Asian students that they're discriminated against in Harvard admissions. Yeah, it is, but it's, it's, it's wrong for the white students too. Well, it's wrong when, forget about the white people for a second. It doesn't matter when you discriminate against them, but the poor Asian students. Yeah, it's wrong for the Asian students. It's wrong to be cruel and discriminatory toward the Asian students. And it's wrong to be cruel and discriminatory toward black students or Hispanic students or whatever. And it is wrong. It is just as wrong to be cruel and discriminatory toward white people. Are we allowed to say that? I don't know. I know I can, I can, hear people going a little quiet when you, because you're not, I don't know why you're not allowed to say that. It seems so obvious. And everyone gets it. Every normal person, sensible person gets it. The only people who don't seem to get it are the Republican political consultants who want to run, run away from this stuff. Okay. The reason that Republicans are doing well right now, in spite of Republican political consultants, is that ordinary people across a whole wide range of demographics realize that the Democrats have lost the plot here. And they, they just want to hear people talk to them like a normal person. That's why Donald Trump did so well too. He talked to people like a normal person and he addressed political issues like a normal person. And he wasn't totally politically correct. And he didn't parse all of his language all the time. And he called a spade a spade. That's what we got to do. Speaking of white people, I've got the most white people story in the world right now. And it's a very important day. And even I, a swarthy American, really, I I identify with my uh, white brothers and sisters here, mostly white sisters, mostly teenage white girls. It's pumpkin spice latte day. Yes, I know that many conservatives don't like uh, the pumpkin spice latte. They don't like Starbucks very much. I I don't care. I love it. I love it. It is a delicious drink. It is nostalgic. It is is wonderful. It's a little too sweet. You got to bring the sugar down a little bit. It, I, lo- I look forward to it every single year. It's a sign of the times. The the beginning of my new of my favorite season, autumn. It's wonderful. Okay, but I've got some bad news for the pumpkin spice latte aficionados out there. All of the seventeen year old white girls who listen to this show. The price of the PSL has increased dramatically, according to a report from CNN. The PSL will, will go up from $5.45. That is so outrageous. Five, oh my, that's what I'm paying for this thing? That is such, a, that is a crime. Never mind. $5.45 to $5.95. That's a 4% increase. And I can't even blame Starbucks. Inflation is up year over year at 8.5%. So it's not, Star, Starbucks only raised at 4%, not even 8.5%. I will never forgive Joe Biden for this. I will, it was one thing, you know, when he caused the war in Ukraine and flooded the country with illegal aliens and destroyed the economy, and that, that was all bad and called us all fascists. I will never forgive him for raising the price of the pumpkin spice latte. But what, this is a message from our elites, okay? Yes, it's going to hurt the Democrats in the midterms because the economy is not doing well. But this was a plan. You had Barack Obama in 2008 saying, we need fuel prices to go up. That's how we're going to get on the green agenda. You have people who show up to Davos, who are part of the kind of global cosmopolitan set, who say, well, we actually need certain prices to go up. That's what's going to force people into a greener, more interconnected, less national, more globalist kind of world. And they're getting exactly what they want. The time is upon us for another backstage. It's happening tonight, 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's about time because there's more news than ever to discuss. If you've never seen Backstage before, it is where we all get together. It's me, Ben, Matt, Drew, 
the God King Jeremy Boring, for a roundtable discussion on the most burning topics of the day. Jokes will be cracked. Cigars will be smoked. Libations will be imbibed. You definitely do not want to miss this one. Tune in to join us for Backstage tonight, 6 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Eastern, dailywireplus.com. All of these stories, the collapse of our political order, especially the collapse of our economy, the 4% hike on the price of the pumpkin spice latte, all of that ties back in to France. We were just talking about France and the imagined civil war that's about to break out. Emmanuel Macron, the leader of France, just came out and I think he spoke for the entire Western elite when he said, you know what this is all about, guys? It's a, you want too much. You desire too much. You've got it too good, and you've got to say goodbye to abundance. What we are living through is a time of great upheaval. Firstly, because we are witnessing, and not just since this summer, but over the past few years, the end of what we might have seen as abundance. And for those who enjoyed it, it is also the end of a carefree time. Our freedom, the liberty to which we have grown accustomed to in our lives has a price. And sometimes when we have to defend it, we have to make certain sacrifices as we fight to defend it. It's the end of abundance. That's what it is. That's, that's what the, the message is from the elite. And it, it reminds us, it's really it's important to take those lessons from, from history, especially the fall of the Soviet Union. And for many other empires too. While the economy is humming along, you can paper over a lot of problems. When the economy stops, those problems leap to the fore. This is why Irving Kristol, who's kind of the OG neocon, the OG neocons were actually pretty smart and interesting. The, the, the term became really poisoned because the second generation neocons had a bunch of stupid, terrible policies and they all became never Trumpers and they're just like gadflies in American politics. But the OG neocons, people like Irving Kristol, uh, were really smart people. And Irving Kristol made the point that conservatism, conservatism today, he was saying this in the 60s and 70s, is religion, nationalism, and economic growth which is super based, to use an anachronistic word there. That's not, that's not the kind of language we expect to hear from the neocons, because the, the neo-neocons have really kind of changed and spoiled the whole thing. But religion, totally agree. Nationalism, absolutely. And economic growth, that one's important too. You, you do need some prosperity in order to keep the society humming along. When you start taking away people's gas and oil, when you start taking away people's food, when you start raising the price of the pumpkin spice latte, people start to become a little bit impatient and you get a little bit, a little bit more chaos. Speaking of abundance, Meghan Markle is back in the news, I'm sorry to say. Meghan Markle, the former Duchess of Sussex, married Prince Harry, this American bioweapon that was, we probably built in a lab here. I wonder if Dr. Fauci built Meghan Markle in a lab on, at the behest of the U.S. government to destroy the British royal family, because that's certainly what she's been doing. She, uh, we sent her over there, then they, they sent her back. They said, no, we don't want her. <laughs> you can take Harry too. We don't want him either. So Meghan Markle, very, very unlikable public figure. Uh, Meghan Markle comes out and has just compared her marrying into the royal family, her becoming an actual princess 
to Nelson Mandela being freed from prison. Meghan Markle has a new podcast because every millennial has to have a podcast. That's, the, that's a federal law now, I think. Meghan Markle on her podcast claims that when she attended The Lion King in London, a cast member pulled her aside and just said, I need you to know when you married into this family, we rejoiced in the streets the same we did when Mandela was freed from prison. Uh, the grandson of Nelson Mandela, the South African leader, uh, did not like this comment from Meghan Markle, understandably so. What does this tell you? It tells you that the victim narrative, especially in America, but throughout the Western world, but especially in America, is so, so powerful. I bet she believes it. I bet Meghan Markle, one of the most privileged people on earth, actual royalty, believes that she is a victim, like a political dissident being imprisoned for years. That's it. And the narrative is very, very strong. And so we can, we can either complain about it or we can try to make it work in our favor. Okay, Donald Trump actually did this. Donald Trump did not exactly take the high road in 2016. He was attacked for that. He said, Donald, you're just playing the victim. You're just crying and complaining. You, you need to stop complaining, Donald. And what did Trump say? He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to complain, 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 complain. I'm going to whine, 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 whine until I win. And what, what Trump, I, I don't know if this was conscious or just subconscious because the guy's got a good gut. But he was saying, I'm going to play American politics where it actually is. You're all going to play American politics where the bow tie set in the think tanks over the fancy lunches wishes that it were. But me, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to play American politics right where it lives. I'm not going to present my case to the American people in a series of white papers. When people ask Donald Trump, hey, what are you going to do as president? He goes, you know what I want? I want great neighborhoods. I want there to be great neighborhoods, okay? That's, what, that's going to be my job as president. And all the bow tie people and all the think tank people said, oh my gosh, no, that's not what the role of the federal government actually, that, what we need to do is, is take that power out of Washington, D.C. and then send that back to the states and the local government, ideally the county governments. And, then, and you know what the American people here, the, the sort of average voter here is, uh, what? Shut up, nerd. <laughs> Shut up, nerd. I hate my neighborhood. There's guns everywhere. There's drugs on the streets. There's some bum defecating on my sidewalk. Yeah, I'm going to vote for the guy that gives me a good neighborhood. Thank you very much. No, but actually, you don't understand. Because of the principle of federalism, you have... No. No. And, uh, you know, Trump might understand that as well. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pro-federalism. I'm pro-restoring a coherent political order. But we've got... We got drugs everywhere. We've got the average life expectancy in the United States declining. We got people chopping off the genitals of little kids. We've got crime going through the roof. So forgive me if when we're campaigning and talking to real human beings with real problems and real concerns, we take it out of the pie in the sky for a second and say, oh yeah, you see that problem, that problem in your life. If you elect me, I'm going to do my very best to fix it. That's what we got to do. Speaking of victims, in their neighborhoods. There's a video just went viral. It was actually captured on a ring doorbell cam of a guy, a 22-year-old guy, uh, who tries to bust into his ex-girlfriend's house. And the ex-girlfriend's living with her family. Obviously, they're pretty young people. And she says, go away. You know, no, I'm not letting you in. And he, he won't take no for an answer. And he just starts trying to, trying to bust down the door. Here's what happens. 
So the door's locked. He starts just trying to shoulder it in, trying to bust in through it. What's happening? You hear the guy inside. He goes, I got a gun. Get out of here. doesn't matter. He keeps trying to bust in the door. And then the guy with the gun really had a gun, shoots the guy. The guy goes down. The guy is dead. Your first reaction to this video will tell me everything I need to know about your political views. This video, it's a sad video. I mean, you don't, you don't really see the guy die on camera, mercifully, but you see him. He gets shot. He kind of stammers off the camera. If your first reaction to this video is, oh, that, that kid, that poor kid, oh no, can you, this country, we have too many guns, I, that's so unnecessary, they, they didn't have to, if that's your first reaction, then you're a lib, then you're a leftist, then your view of justice is just kind of messed up. If your first take watching that video is, oh, sad that the house, that the owner of the house had to do that, but he did what he had to do and he protected his daughter, then your view of justice and politics is going to be conservative and right-wing and correct. And that's it. And it, it, it tells me a lot about American politics too, because it, on the way the camera is set up, right, just by virtue of it being a doorbell, all you see is the guy who gets shot. So, so you say, well, he must be the victim. He's not the victim. He's the perpetrator. What the hell was he going to do to that poor girl? The girl in the house says, dad, I think he's going to kill me. What's he getting? Could you imagine you're, you're, you're in a home. You're saying, I have a gun. Go away. Stop trying to break into my home. And then the guy keeps coming in. I don't think that guy's there to talk. I don't think that guy's there to have tea. I think that guy's there to do bad, bad things. But the perspective here is everything because a lot of people are looking at that and they're going to say, oh, that poor, he's the victim. They shouldn't, the, the dad should have shot him in the leg or whatever, whatever nonsense that people who've never held a firearm in their lives say. The dad should have fired a warning shot. You know, Joe Biden, he should have fired a shotgun into the air. That, yeah, that's a good idea, Joe. But that's the perspective. You don't, you don't see, the camera's not on the father who's defending his home and his daughter. The camera's not on the daughter. Who the hell knows what that guy has already done had already done or would have done to that daughter. And that's it. And that, that perspective is so key. And a really important rule for politics that I would strongly recommend is that we get a lot better about turning the camera. Okay. When we, t- the libs always talk about how, you know, the poor victims of the war on drugs, you know, the drug dealers, those poor victims so it's so wrong that we lock up all the drug dealers working for the Mexican cartels. That's so terrible, peddling poison to little kids. Uh, what, what victims there? They're not the victims. They're the perpetrators. The victims are the people who die because some, some pill peddler, you know, gave them, gave them some drugs outside of their school. The victims are the family members of the poor kids who die. The victims are the American people where the average life expectancy goes down. You got to turn the camera. You got to turn the perspective a little bit. The, the issue with victim culture is not even that there are no such thing as victims. It's that the people who are pretending to be victims are usually the perpetrators in victim culture. And maybe if we paid a little more attention to the actual victims, we'd be a lot better off. It's kind of like cancel culture. The problem with cancel culture is not that we have standards and we say you can and can't say certain things. It's that in, in our current cancel culture, if, if you say the truth, you'll get canceled. And if you say false things, false things, you'll get promoted. That's actually what my uh, kind of video essay on YouTube is about, where we have all the receipts and we talk about the social media blacklist campaign that went on for two and a half years. 
That's the issue. The issue is not that we cancel people. It's that we cancel good things and promote bad things when really it should be the opposite. Now, you know, the rest of the show is continuing now. You do not want to miss it if you are not a member. Click the link in the description and join us. And speaking of that member block, tomorrow on my show during the exclusive member portion, we are going to be talking to Kirk Cameron. He'll be stopping by the studio for an exclusive interview. If you are not a Daily Wire Plus member, be sure to sign up today so that you can have access to the full show, exclusive interviews, and the uh, interview tomorrow with Kirk Cameron. And if you didn't catch it yesterday, we interviewed the podium guy from January 6th. So you can go check that out. A delightful interview. Okay, let's get to the member block. We'll see you over there.